Man, thank you guys. It is, it's been so, I mean, I've been looking forward to being with you guys, and I prayed that uh, this weekend would just be really encouraging for you all. Um, I, it's, it's always like coming home. I mean, I, just, I was in your, at your church two weeks ago, and uh, just being here with you guys, it's like coming home, even though I don't know the majority of you. Uh, it's just home because your church is so like-minded, and I know that that's, you know, your, your pastors are very like-minded, and just knowing Roy, is, this, is, that, is that my mic? See, I told you, I told James, I said, he does it, and he's like, yeah, it's this easy, and I'm like, yeah, until I touch it, and then I guarantee you, it's, um, there we go, how's that, is that coming through? Yep, testing here, testing, is that coming through? Okay, all right, try not to yell here on the test, that could be dangerous, very dangerous. Um, But I, I, you know, I just want to say, as we look forward to devoting our time in God's Word this weekend, we're going to be looking at a theme that I know your Pastor Roy has modeled. I've seen it in him. Um, he, Pastor Roy is one of the most, one of the greatest examples that I know of, of responding to your sin well. Um, I, I want to just begin by telling you a story that I, I try to think back to what was on my mind, how did I process sin when I was your age. And actually, I came up with an illustration that was actually, I think, younger than, well, probably maybe the youngest class. I was either a sixth grader or a seventh grader. I couldn't remember, but I remember what classroom I was sitting in. It was science class, and we had lab tables, and every lab table had two students to a table. And my lab partner, his name was Josh, and I remember one Monday morning, Josh comes walking into the science room. I can see him from across the room, He's walking, weaving between the lab tables, coming over to sit next to me, and I'm looking at him, and I can tell there is something crazy hanging around his neck. He sits down next to me, and I'm looking at him, and sure enough, hanging around his neck is the hood ornament from a brand new Mercedes. And I said, where'd you get that? He's like, oh, it was a pretty fun weekend. And I was like, I'm like, excuse me? He's like, yeah, we found this new Mercedes. So we uh, swiped it. Wow. And I'm like, wow, okay. And just showcasing it for everyone to know. What, what happened to the who vandalized the car? I wouldn't know except the guy with the Mercedes hood on him hanging around his neck. I mean, I was like, this guy is just foolish for a thousand and one reasons. And I remember even as I was not a believer when I was uh, probably, probably 12 or 13, whatever I was, I was not a believer but I remember asking my friend Josh, Josh, what are you going to do with your sin? And he just looked at me and he said, bro, I'll get saved when I'm in my 60s. That's literally what he said to me. And I remember being haunted by that answer. I mean, I was only 12 or 13, but I knew that is a horrible answer. It's obviously, and I know I'm not surprising any of you, that is not how you respond to your sin. But you know what? I honestly think if you're asking the question this weekend, how should I respond to my sin? That's actually a really, really important question. And I think sometimes we don't do well in how we answer that question. And I know I am a stubborn sinner, and I need a lot of help knowing how to answer that question. And so when it comes to the right response to our sin, how should I respond to my sin? What do I do with my sin? How do I think about my sin? That is an absolutely urgent question that you need to answer. And I don't want anybody going home this weekend without knowing how to answer that question. What do you do with your sin? How do you respond to it? Now, my friend Josh is an obvious example of what not to do. Let me give you a little bit more difficult examples in the Bible. There's some examples in the Bible that actually, on on the surface, look like pretty decent responses to sin. And I'm going to read these, and I want you to listen along, and I want you to be thinking, now I'm I'm telling you ahead of time, here's the answer to the quiz. All these are bad examples. We're going to look at three bad examples. So as you're reading and hearing from God's word, bad examples of how to respond to your sin, I want you to be thinking, well, what's wrong with that example? What's wrong with this response? Start in Acts chapter 24. Grab your Bibles. Open up to Acts chapter 24. The example here is Felix. Felix was a ruler of, uh, in, in the Greco-Roman era, just about um, two decades after Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead. And the Apostle Paul is now on trial 
for his message. And he's, he's on trial. He's under arrest in Caesarea. And in chapter 24, you have um, Felix, and he wants to hear from Paul. So in verse um, 10, he actually has called Paul down to come speak to him. So Paul's, Felix is kind of curious. He's kind of a guy who, he's like, I've got this notable prisoner. He's a famous preacher. I kind of want to hear what he has to say. Like, he's kind of philosophically minded. I think he's kind of curious. What's he going to say? I'll bring out the prisoner and entertain me. Say something impressive. And so he just brings out Paul. And then verse 10, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, and he just launches and starts preaching the gospel. He starts explaining that, you know what, I'm actually on trial for preaching the truth, namely the truth about the fact that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. I'm not making anything up. <laughs> I'm just telling you the historical facts, and it's actually a fulfillment of all that was told to our nation through the prophets hundreds of years ago. That's what he says. Turn the page, skip it, or maybe not in your Bible. Just skip down to um, verse... Well, actually, let's just jump down to um, verse 20. He says, Let these men themselves tell whatever misdeed they found And when I stood before the council. So he's basically saying, Show me what I did wrong in preaching the gospel about Jesus Christ dying for sinners and rising from the dead. Other than, verse 21, Other than this one statement, which I shouted out while among them, For the resurrection of the dead, I'm on trial before you today. But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, he put them off, saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes, then I'll decide your case. Verse 23. Then he gave orders to someone for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewish, and sent for Paul, and they heard him speak about faith in Christ. So they say one more time. He says one more time. I'm kind of curious about this whole gospel bit, why you're under arrest. Is what you said, is that illegal? Let's hear it one more time. What's he going to respond to? How's he going, what's he going to say about this? Verse 25. But as he was discussing righteousness, that's the standard of right that God holds all men accountable to. We are all accountable to live out a righteous life. As he began discussing self-control, the necessity, we're going to stand before the Lord and are we going to be able to show that we had self-control of our lives? Was our, was our life controlled by the Holy Spirit's influence that we actually subdued sin in our life? And as he began to speak to them about the judgment to come, we're all going to stand before the judge. Christians will never be condemned, but everyone stands judgment. As Paul is saying these things, Felix became frightened. Okay, pause right there. Now at this point, he's hearing truth, and he's thinking about his own sin. And to Felix's credit, his response is actually much better than my friend Josh. My friend Josh like, eh, man, big whoop. When I turn 60, I'll get saved. Felix at least has the wherewithal to be frightened. I mean, at least there's some sanity left, some spiritual sanity to say, this is not good. This is bad for me. And he's, he's genuinely frightened as he thinks about sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. But look at what happens. Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. And when you finish the story, Felix actually finishes out his entire political career in that office, and the next guy replaces him, and he never calls Paul back. Here's a man who heard about his sin, he thought about his sin, and he said, That's terrifying, I don't want anything to do with it. And so there's a sense where even though at least he was frightened, he ultimately responded to his sin just like my friend Josh. He just said, eh, later. We don't have any record of what happened to Felix. Apart from the grace of God, he died in his sin. He was in his sin at the end of this story. He was frightened about his sin. He was frightened. But he did not respond rightly. He did not respond rightly to his sin. Okay, one more. Oh, sorry, two more. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Um, 
if you're, if you're learning your way through the Bible, Hebrews is toward the very back. It's the big first general epistle. So if you, after Philemon, before James. Hebrews chapter 12. And this story, this example here, is the, is the example of Esau. So some of you know the example of Esau. You might have heard the story of Esau. Um, you know, Esau sold his birthright. He gave up his birthright for a stew, right? For a lunch. He was hungry, and he's like, a famish? He's like, yeah, you can have my birthright if you just give me some of that stew. Okay, you remember that whole story? Well, Esau becomes an example of what not to do. Verse 14 our, uh, the, epistle writes the, the, the apostle writes this, Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So everybody needs to pursue peace. We all need to pursue sanctification. That means holiness. Verse 15, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, and that no bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Now watch this. Here's what he's warning about. Watch out, verse 16 that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. Okay, Esau. Esau has our example now. Here's an example of a guy who did not respond to his sin well. And as I read these next two verses, I want you to be thinking, well, what was it that Esau did that was so bad? How did he respond to his sin that was just, it seems very, there's an intensity here. There's a sincerity here. There's emotion involved. There is a lot of tears so let's pay very close attention to what happens here. What ha- Esau responds to his sin, and it's very intense. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance." although he sought for it with tears. And this is kind of a challenging passage, I'll admit. Let me just give you a little bit of, I'm going to help you cheat here on this quiz. Do you guys see that last phrase, though he sought for it with tears? Um, it, it kind of, sometimes it kind of sounds like just because the last thing that he mentions is the repentance. It might sound like the it is the repentance. But it, the place of repentance is really one whole phrase. It, when he says he was seeking for it, what he was actually, the it is actually the blessing. The it is the blessing. So now, look at it one more time. You know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, and I'm going to read that this way now, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, although he sought for the blessing with tears. What was wrong with Esau's response to his sin? He gives up his birthright that God has given to him. He just despises it. I don't care what God gave me. I'm just hungry. And he just feeds his belly. He just totally despises the spiritual God-given blessing for selfishness. And you think, but he wept over it. Isn't that a good response to your sin? Hey, well, I hope we've all wept over our sin. There's nothing wrong with weeping over sin. That's totally appropriate. But that's not enough. He wept over it, and the problem is why he was weeping. Why was Esau weeping? He was weeping because in his sin, he gave up something that he selfishly valued, and he wanted it back. He didn't respond to his sin rightly because he was still selfish. Okay, one more example. Are you guys tracking? You guys got this? Two, two bad examples, right? Two bad examples. One more bad example. Let's look at Judas. Look at Judas. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27. Let's look at verse, let's just start in verse 3. This is after he has already betrayed Jesus. So if um, most of you are probably familiar with the story of Judas, but he was one of the twelve who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and then after he betrayed him, I mean, you think about this, he had been ministered to by Jesus. Jesus was a personal friend of Judas's. Jesus has ministered to Judas. He has cared for Judas. He has sacrificed for Judas. And then Judas, because he has access to Jesus, is willing to say, I'll betray him to you for money. He loved money. He was actually stealing from the the checkbook of the disciples. 
He loved money, and so here he does that, and now he is just sick with grief. Verse 3, Matthew 27, verse 3. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he, Jesus, had been condemned, he hands him over to the Jewish leaders, and then he sees Jesus sent to his death, and he was the means of getting him into their hands. So it's like, okay, we got him arrested, good, I got my money. Well, hopefully this whole thing just goes away. But then Jesus goes to his death, and he's just like, what have I done? It says he felt remorse. Remorse. He feels really bad about what he did. He felt remorse. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. That is an intense response to sin. Intense response to sin. And it's a horrible response to sin. What's wrong with Judas' repentance? What's wrong with his remorse? His remorse is a grief that's like Esau. It's very selfish. He doesn't like the feeling of the guilt because he knows he is that wicked and he's willing to do whatever he can to make the sense of guilt go away. And he takes his life and he enters into a state of permanent guilt. It's a horrible response to sin. And I think when I was your age, you know, I just didn't know how to respond to sin. I'll just be honest. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, wow, those are some strange, those are crazy responses to sin. I don't want to do that. Well, thankfully, that's, I'm glad to hear that. If I was in your, when I was in your shoes, I really wouldn't have been able to tell you how to respond to sin. You know how I responded to sin? A little bit more sophisticated than my friend Josh. I just ignored it. I just swept it under the rug. You know, you talk about like if your mom asks you to sweep something up and you just put some dirt under the rugs, you don't have to walk over to the trash can. Oh, okay, she won't notice. It looks like I swept. I used to do that with my sin. I used to just think, okay, just ignore it. Don't talk about it. Just stuff it and it'll never appear and then it's just as good as dealt with. And my sin just kept compounding. I kept getting more guilty and my conscience would bear down on me and my conscience was telling me, you know God knows. You know you're going to give an account for that. And I didn't know how to respond to my sin and I actually loved my sin. So what I want to do this weekend is I'm going to give you an answer. How do you respond to your sin? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 51. We're going to spend several sessions in Psalm 51 this weekend. This is going to take a lot of our attention. Psalm 51 is, uh, a, is such a sweet contrast to those three examples we just saw. Psalm 51 is a great response to sin. It is a, it is a, is a response to sin. In fact, this is the only kind of response to sin that God's pleased with. God's response to Esau, he couldn't stand his response to sin. God's response to um, Judas, he couldn't stand his response to sin. God's response to Felix, he couldn't stand his response to sin. Those responses to sin were superficial. They were self-loving. They were dismissive. David's response to sin is the opposite. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read the first stanza because that's all we're going to look at this tonight. So tonight is first stanza, verses 1 through 4. And then we'll go through this session at a time through each stanza. And then we're actually going to end in Psalm 32. That's what we're going to do this weekend. So each stanza of Psalm 51 is going to get its own session. So we're going to get, it's going to really be Sunday morning before we get through Psalm 51. And then we'll go to Psalm 32, okay? That's the plan. So we'll, we'll try to keep on pace. But for tonight, what I want to do is just read the introduction, the little historical superscript at the beginning of the psalm. I want you to see that. And then I'll read the first stanza, and then we'll dive right in, okay? So let me read this, and then we'll pray. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. 
That's our text tonight. We're going to spend the last few minutes that we have in that stanza. Let's just pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for this robust, helpful response to sin. Thank you that you inspired David to write out this scripture that's an infallible, perfect testimony to the kind of response to sin that you are pleased with. And I pray that this response to sin that happened 3,000 years ago would just be as timeless and as living uh, as it has always been in your church, but timeless and living for these precious students. This weekend, I pray that you would help every student have clarity about the way they can respond to their sin that would be pleasing to you. And when you answer that prayer, Lord, we'll look back with joy, with gratitude, just overwhelming humility that you are a God like this. You are a God who forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression. You're such a forgiving God. You are such a gracious God. I pray that you would convince everyone of that this weekend and that they would not rest until they respond to their sin this way. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, that little superscript there at the beginning gives you the historical background. If you know the story, you can read First Sam, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. David was unfaithful to his own wife and sinned with Bathsheba. And then if that wasn't enough, they tried to cover it up. And if that wasn't enough, that didn't work. And they, he killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And then there they go. They get married and they try to just cover up the whole horrible ordeal. And Nathan comes to him and says, let me tell you a story about a man who had one sheep and a man who had a hundred sheep. And the one with, a hun- with one was sitting there and that was all he owned. The man with a hundred had guests over and said, well, just go take the guy with the one. Take his sheep. I don't want to give up one of mine. And he plundered that guy's sheep. And David says, the man who did this needs to pay tenfold. And Nathan said, you are the man. You know what's unique about, when, well, I, th- I think I can say that. You know what's unique about the human nature? I mean, it's just, I've never seen a more brilliant, quicker, mental effort than a human being with the finger being pointed at them. Let me just speak firsthand. When somebody has pointed out a sin in my life, suddenly my mind goes into light speed, trying to figure out why it's not as bad as it looks. It wasn't me. It was... And then you start coming up with excuses. Oh, well, there's a circumstance you need to understand. You know what David does here? Nathan says, you're the man. And Psalm 51 is David saying, I am the man. Students, listen. If you don't get anything else about this tonight, then just get this. Before God, you must be able to point the finger at yourself and say, it's me. I'm the problem. I'm the cause. And what this stanza is going to show us is that when we can do that before the Lord, we're not going to have a sorrow like Esau's. We're not going to have a sorrow or a remorse like Judas. We're going to have a Godward sorrow. Our sorrow will suddenly not be because, oh, I hate that I lost some sort of privilege or I made a fool out of myself and sinned in front of my friends and now they don't respect me as much. Oh, I wish they thought I was cooler. Oh, no, I hate that. No, suddenly, you know what happens? When you can point the finger at yourself, students, suddenly... Your sorrow is, I'm so grieved that God was treated that way by me. He should never have been treated that way. He deserves to be treated differently. That's a Godward sorrow. And that's what David describes here. Verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Consider David's circumstances. Adultery, concealment, murder. Think about all the lies involved of the messengers having to go back and forth between Bathsheba's house and David's palace. The messengers between the Abner, the, the general, Joab, sorry, the, the general and David's palace. Think about all the cover-up, all the sin, all the excuse, all the justification, all the funny little ways we get around saying, oh, my parents shouldn't think that's so bad. It's just... David had all of that in spades, and he is undone. And he knows, I have guilt that is just heaping to the heavens. Students, have you ever looked at, have you ever been been made aware of your sin and realized, 
I am just so disobedient. Or have you ever thought, I'm just so stubborn. Or have you ever thought, I just don't love God like I ought to. Or have you ever thought, I don't hunger for God's word like I'm supposed to. Have you ever thought that? If you've ever thought that, you might be tempted to think that you're so bad that God could never be gracious to you. Verse 1 should prove that wrong. God is telling us tonight, there is a gracious God in heaven who wrote the scriptures and his loving kindness has a measure that goes beyond David's guilt and it goes beyond your guilt and it goes beyond my guilt according to the greatness of your compassion. So God, if this is how much compassion you have, you know, and it's almost like, like in a video game, if you put like a little, like a meter, like a health meter or whatever, or something like in a video game, there's like a little meter there. Imagine there's like a meter of God's compassion. It's just, and just blows the gauge, goes, starts wrapping around the screen. I mean, there's no end to God's compassion. So when we start to see our sin, sometimes we might think, that is really bad, and that might be true. <laughs> it's, that's very true. But our sin never exceeds God's capacity for compassion. When I was um, in college, I remember, uh, I think I might have told, mentioned this um, a couple of years ago in camp, but there was a certain circumstance that God used to save me. I was, uh, I was in college in Chicago, and um, I was playing, played on the basketball team, and I um, had a girlfriend, and in a couple of months, um, I tore my ACL, ended my basketball career, broke up with my girlfriend, and there I was, totally lonely, just doing rehab, and I, had, I didn't know anybody because all of my friends were this girl's friends. And so I get a call from my parents and hear that my mom came down with terminal cancer. And she ended up dying from it five years later. And I remember walking through the, the streets of Chicago, and I remember there was this dark alley, and I just it had this very distinct, it's just like one of those memories of who I was by nature before God saved me. I remember seeing this dark alley. There was a street light casting a shadow on the alley. And I remember thinking, that would be the perfect place to hide. And for whatever reason, I thought, man, if somebody was in there and they wanted to try to mug me, I would just love the thought of trying to be able to hurt them. I was just angry. It sounds really, really weird. Hopefully that doesn't sound familiar. But if it does, then we can relate. I was so angry at my circumstances I just wanted to hurt someone. I went back to my dorm. I remember reading my Bible. And I remember I had, a very, I had two paths in front of me. On one path, I can see all of this sinful anger. And I could say, well, I was taking a psychology class at the time. I could say, I think my professor's right. I'm just depressed because I'm in some really bad circumstances. I'm just angry because I had really bad circumstances come my way. That's a very flattering interpretation because I'm not wrong. I'm just a victim of depression. Or what the Bible says is true. God is seated on the thrones of the heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And he has done something to me that I don't like. And I'm shaking my fist at him because I don't like him being God. You better believe. I mean, I, students, I grew up in the church. I shared the gospel with people. It wasn't until that night that I believed God should send me to hell. And I remember thinking, here I am, a puny speck of dust in God's creation, and I'm shaking my fist at him like, I wish you weren't God. I want to be God. I'm having this temper tantrum in his universe. And I remember thinking, God should just squish me like a bug. What response could he ever have except to crush me? There's no way he could be compassionate and forgiving to a sinner like me. And then look no further than verse 1. God, would you be gracious to me? In line with the magnanimity, the, the, the significant size, the infinite nature of your compassion, your graciousness, would you be gracious and Blot out my transgressions. Verse 2. 
He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now, students, think about this for a second. Have you ever, have you ever um, ended the day and maybe you're like, it's time to go to bed and you're, you're changing clothes and you put on your PJs and you look down and you realize, man, this shirt that I've been wearing all day, oh man, I got food all over it. There's some of lunch, there's some of dinner. And I'm sure none of you have ever done that. But I've heard about people who do that. I'm just joking. I get, sometimes I get food on my clothes and I realize, man, I didn't even notice. I, didn't, I wasn't even aware. You know, if I had known about it, and it was an important, like let's say I had an important meeting with somebody and you know, I'm going to show up with spaghetti sauce all over my shirt. It's like, that's kind of distracting. I probably would have changed my shirt if I had had the chance, right? You wouldn't, you don't change your clothes unless you're aware that there's a stain there. No one just changes their clothes because there's, and there's no stain. David is very aware. There is a stain on his soul and he knows his only hope is for God to wash his soul. That's a profound reality, students. Think about this. Your response to sin should be, wait a minute, if, if I just did something that God hates, if I didn't do something he told me to do, or I refused to do something that he told me to do, either one, then I need to be washed. I need to be cleansed. I need God to purify me. And David knew that only God could purify. He knew, in fact, that it was going to be his own son, his own seed, he didn't know that he was going to be Jesus of Nazareth, but he knew of the Christ, and he anticipated Christ dying on the cross. It was told to him, and he knew that Christ was going to die on the cross and rise from the dead, and that was the only way David could be cleansed. In fact, Hebrews 9 says that's the only way our conscience can be clean. Uh, has anybody here ever done a paint project with their parents or with their siblings? You ever painted? So who here has painted with a roller? You're, are you, who, who's, who's a roller fan? Does anybody like cutting in with a paintbrush? You know, like the little the detail work? You're a, paint, you're a cutting person. Yeah, that's, that's my wife. I'm like, I just want to see progress. I'm so lazy, I just want to see pro, easy progress. I'm like the roller guy. You know, just give me the roller. I like the roller. But have you ever tried to clean out the roller? I don't know if you have like a routine for this. I have a routine. My routine is I start, I start you know, I, I kind of squeeze it and then spray it or whatever. But it's, isn't it funny, like, if you rinse out the roller and then you start, what I like to do is take the pressure. I, like, squeeze the hose until I build up as much pressure as I can and then hold it right next to one side of it and just get that thing spinning as fast as I possibly can. It's like if you squeeze it, squeeze it, squeeze it, water it, water it, water it, and then you start doing, like, the pressure wash and the centrifugal force just starts throwing up stuff everywhere, you just see more paint come out. I mean, I've washed paint rollers for like 10 minutes, and I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just do the pressure wash. And all of a sudden, paint goes everywhere. It's like, where did that come from? It was hidden so deep inside the paint roller. It took that amount of pressure to bring it out. And David is sitting there saying, he's looking deep within his soul, and he realizes, this is, we're way beyond changing behaviors here. We're way beyond being a better student, a better child, a better member of the youth group. I need to be cleansed within. It's like the paint roller. Sin is deep inside, and so when we sin by way of action, it's because our heart is sinful. And we need to be cleansed, not just in our actions, we need to be cleansed in our inner man, in our heart, in our soul. And that's what David is praying for in verse 2. Now, we've got to, be, we, we've got to tackle verse 3 and 4, but this is critical, and we only have a few minutes left. Let's do this. Let's just buckle up here. Let's dive into verse 3 and 4. Here's one thing I want to say from verse 3. We've got to start here in verse 3. And, and here's one of the root causes of sin. I want you guys to write this down. And this is going to be really important for your discussion in small groups. Two causes of repentance. Two root causes of repentance. Number one, awareness of sin. You can't respond rightly to your sin if you're not aware of it. You can't respond rightly to your sin if you don't know what it is, if you don't know how bad it is, and if you don't know uh, what, what it means for your soul. So the question really is, am I aware of my sin? Is your sin in front of you? Do you see it? Excuse me, do you see it clearly? Look at verse 2. I'm sorry, verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David is sitting there, and you know what he can see? All he can see is his sin. He looks at himself, he's not... He's not praising himself. He's not making himself look better. He's not describing all the areas he obeyed. He's not saying, oh, at least I did this and I finished my homework on time and forget about that lie over here or forget about this thought that I had over here that was wicked or impure and forget about the fact that I you know, was selfish with my friends. And 
I'll just, because after all, Mom, I got my homework done, and I cleaned my house, or my room, and I finished my chores on time, and no, all he sees is sin. It doesn't matter what he's done good. He sees his sin. He's aware of his sin. Are you aware of your sin? You know, I want to I wanna help you guys, and, and this, is, this is a really intense sermon, first of all. So, by the way, this, great job. You're doing awesome. Uh, this is quite a way to start off an entire weekend, is just to dive in with this stanza. But I know that you guys are up for it. I want to give you one more passage before we come back to verse 4 to help you understand verse 3. You do understand, students, that when you sin, like whatever you give yourself to, whatever you choose to do, whenever you give yourself to a selfish desire, whenever you choose disobedience, when you refuse to do what God said, if you commit yourself to doing what he said not to do, you give yourself to it. You become sin's slave. And sin is so wicked. One one Puritan said that sin is worse than hell because what sin can do that hell can't is it can ruin you from ever seeing your sin rightly. It's actually worse than hell. So let me just show you that. I know this is very heavy. I wish somebody had told me this when I was a seventh grader. I don't ever remember seeing this psalm. Psalm 36. Look at Psalm 36. This is going to be important for you. Hopefully this this helps you in your small group discussion. Hopefully it helps you personally as you think about your response to your own sin. Psalm 36. It's a Psalm of David. Verse 1. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. For there is no fear of God before his eyes. And I like picturing this verse with the old cartoon of the animated angel and demon, you know, talking on each shoulder. He's like, hey, here's good, good advice. Oh, here's bad advice. And then I go back and forth, and the character's like, oh, which one I listen to? Well, this is David kind of describing, like, transgression personified. So picture, like, a little animated transgression. I don't even know what that image would be. Choose your pick. Create an avatar in your mind of transgression. And here it is, sitting on the shoulder of the sinner, and it starts speaking to the ungodly person. And then let's just move it down to the heart. Not on the shoulder, right here in the heart. It's talking. Hey, listen. Hey, I got something to tell you. Sin starts talking to us. What's sin say? It says it in verse 2. Here's exactly what sin will tell you. It flatters him. Who's him? The ungodly. It flatters the ungodly in his own eyes. Flattery. You know what flattery is? Hey, no use continuing looking at your sin. You got this. Just move forward. Do better next time. You don't need to talk about it. You don't need to uncover it. Don't, don't. Just conceal it. You got this. It starts to flatter you. Yikes. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Oh, students, listen. Listen, this is what happens. When transgression starts talking to you, it will tell you what you want to hear about yourself, about that you're, you're good or you're better than you are or that you don't need to look at that. You can cover it up. And you'll get to the point where you can't even discover your sin anymore. You won't be able to hate it anymore. I wish I had Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2 for my dear friend Josh. I don't know where Josh is today spiritually. But if he's still waiting to turn 60, he has deluded himself because sin has flattered him to the point he will never hate his sin. He will never discover it. Students, now's the time. Now is the time to be aware of your sin, to face up to it, to call it what the Bible calls it. Do not flatter yourself. Don't make it sound better than it is. Use biblical terms for your sin. Uncover it to, number one, the person you've sinned against. Number two, people who are trustworthy in your church, your pastor, your parents, if they're walking with the Lord. Uncover it to people who can help you. Do not go down the path of my friend Josh. Don't go down the path of me. It was God's sheer grace. He saved me at age 18. Josh and I went down the same path. Sin will delude you. All right, we've got to finish up. Go back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. First cause of repentance is awareness of sin. Second cause of, 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 of repentance is awareness of who we sinned against. 
We need to be aware of our sin, and we need to be aware of who we sinned against. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Wow. Who did David sin against? I mean, if you think about the historical account, wait, didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Yeah. Didn't he sin against Uriah? Yeah. Didn't he sin against his army? Yeah. Didn't he sin against the nation? Yeah. Didn't he sin against all those messengers that went back and forth between him and his, his palace and Bathsheba's house? Yes. And the messengers between him and his general on the front lines? Yes, again. He's done a lot of horizontal sinning. This verse is not saying there's no horizontal sin. What this verse is saying is the only sin that matters is the vertical one. It doesn't matter what happens between specks of dust on the earth. What matters is, how have I treated God? And David says, against you and you only I've sinned. It doesn't matter what else the implications are. I've sinned against God. That's all that matters. Let me, um, let, me, let me try to illustrate this for you about how significant it is who we sin against, right? If you, uh, if you get angry at somebody, uh, you know, a friend or maybe a teammate, let's say it's a teammate and, you know, it's not really a friend. You're just, it's just a teammate, somebody you, you happen to play football with and, and they miss a play and you get angry and you say, oh, you idiot, why did you miss that block? Okay, that's, that's, that's very sinful. It's not kind. The Lord's not pleased by that, those words. But if you called up the president of the U.S. and you threatened him, the implications of that sin are bigger, aren't they? Suddenly the implications are bigger. It's a worse crime because of who it's against. How big of a crime are we committing if we sin against the living God? You know, how, how many here, has anybody taken geography, uh, sorry, not geography, geometry. I got the wrong, wrong class. Geometry, okay, my geometry students... You have to help me out here. If I've got a line segment, I have two dots, right? Is that right? Okay. So a ray, a ray is a dot with an arrow, right? Okay. It's like, okay, okay, I'm making sure. This is intimidating. I, mean, I haven't done math for years. Okay, so, uh, and a line is two arrows, right? Okay. Okay, so now, the, the, the one that we need for this illustration is the line. Arrows meaning... This line goes endlessly in both directions. Sometimes we think about our sin and we think, well, that sin was like a really, really, really thin line. It's just a little white lie. Or I was just a little annoyed at my friend. No big deal. Just a tiny little line. But David with Bathsheba, Uriah, whoa, big, big black line. I mean, that was massive black line. And you realize we've sinned against an infinite God. So our sin is not a line segment. It's not a ray. It's the line with arrows on both ends. We've sinned against an infinite God. It doesn't matter if it was a little white lie. It doesn't matter if it's murder. It is an infinite sin. It incurs infinite guilt. David's seen his sin rightly. He is undone because he realized that what he has done is incurred infinite guilt. And this is where we've got to end here. Verse 4b, so that. This so that is so important. In fact, I wish I could just spend all weekend on this so that. You know why this so that has helped me? So that has helped me in times where I've seen sin. I've seen sin at times come up in my heart or in my mind, or maybe it's a sin of the lips of something you said or something that you thought or an action that you did. And have you ever had one of those moments where you see something that you did and you're like, oh, did I really do that? And that's horrible. And then eight seconds later, you do it again. What? Well, I just thought I was, I thought I acknowledged that. What, what happened? And I found myself right back in the same sin. This so that has saved my repentance. You know what this so that does? This so that shows the result of David's thinking. He knows that his line is of infinite guilt. It goes infinitely in both directions. It was a, it was a line, it was a sin against God. And so he comes to this conclusion so that 
Now he's declaring what's true. This is so critical, students. In fact, if you don't talk about anything else in small group, I would say talk about 4B. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. What's he doing here? He's actually training his conscience. He's actually speaking truth to his conscience, to his soul, with what happened there. And he's saying to God, in fact, this crime was so profoundly against you that you are blameless when you speak a word of indictment against me and you are blameless, you're justified when you speak and you're blameless if you judged me. You're blameless if you condemn me. I mean, what was so profound about my experience back in college at the age of 18 was the first time that I could ever remember where I knew God would have been right to send me to hell. I remember a time where I almost died as a sophomore in high school. I was roofing a house and I fell off backwards from the peak of a house, landed on concrete, um, you know, snapped, snapped bones, cracked ribs, and tore my lip open, and I was just bleeding everywhere, and I was laying there motionless. My dad thought I was dead. I had about four hours of amnesia, I survived. And when I was 18, saying, You had every right to snuff me out. That day I fell off that roof. And if you had sent me to hell, you would have been so righteous. It was the first time I'd ever realized that. David is saying, if you don't get to the point where you're willing to condemn yourself that way for your sin, you're not responding to your sin rightly. You'll find yourself right back in it. The way we respond to sin is habitual, students. Some of you are uh, driving. Who are our drivers? Let's see our drivers. Driver's licenses, hands up, Okay. So some of you guys are all you guys are all young drivers. You're probably very alert drivers. So you haven't been driving long enough to do this, but I get like I'm a habitual driver. Like I kind of go on autopilot. I'm listening to audiobooks or I'm like doing you know like trying to uh, like listen to texts or emails or whatever. Or, um, and actually, for the first three like five months I lived in Arizona, I was using it for you know talking on the phone, and then I realized that was against the law. So I, I, I repented. I didn't know. I was I was totally ignorant. That <laughs> was totally okay in Florida. And I realized okay, so just just audiobooks and just uh, listening to audio, audible reading of texts. And so I'm trying to take care of correspondence on my drive home. And you know what's funny is you get into a routine, don't you? Uh, and maybe you haven't been driving this long, but for me, it's kind of like it's just autopilot. In fact, when, I get, when I'm driving down the freeway and I get to my exit, I don't even think. I'm just on autopilot. I'm just taking care of stuff. I don't even, it's like I pull into my garage. I'm like, wait, how did I get here? I just took care of like 20 minutes worth of correspondence. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's just got. But if, imagine if I had to go north off of my exit instead of south off of my exit. I will never make that north turn. Every single time I'm going to turn south. It's just habitual. And sometimes, students, if your response to your sin feels like, man, I'm just getting worked here, sin just feels like it owns me. It feels like it just rules me. I am not beating sin. Look at verse 4 again and ask, are you justifying God for condemning you for that sin? You know what that does? That sensitizes your conscience. If I find myself doing something I know God hates, and then I'm right back thinking that, saying that, or doing that, Eight seconds later, I know I'm not saying what God believes about that sin. Train up your conscience. Speak truth to it. Say, God, you are so right to condemn just for that one act. Do not let me go down that road again. What that does is that kind of, instead of doing the automatic, just, oh, I always turn right here. It's like it fortifies you so that when you're driving, it's like you just put up some of those Bob's barricades at the bright red lights that are blinking, and then you just put a little concrete footer that, you know, puts a temporary lane, and then you put a big sign that says, you know, exit ramp out, don't turn here, turn on the next exit. You're, you're, you're putting up all of those things so that you would have to do so much damage to get your car back down that habitual path. That's a sensitive conscience that has trained itself with Godward sorrow so that it doesn't keep going back down that same path. Well, this example of Godward sorrow, I pray, is helpful for us. I'm really looking forward to these next coming stanzas. And so um, um, hopefully uh, this has given you enough to think about and you have a lot to talk about in your small group. But I just want to close in a word of prayer. Um, by the way, James, are we doing a closing song or is this it? Is this Okay, this is it. So let me just close in a word of prayer and then you can be dismissed to your small group. Father, Thank you so much for your text. The word that you have given to us is infallible. It is pure. It is perfect. And here we have your 
inspired account of a very real and proper response to sin on the part of King David. Lord, I just want to pray for these students. If these students feel like in their sin they are alone, I pray that this would just cancel that out. I pray that this would prove beyond all doubt that they are not alone. They are not the only person, the only teenager on the face of this planet who sins against you, who offends you. I pray that just seeing your character, your graciousness, your compassion would be so compelling to these students that they would flee to you with the guilt they have incurred because of their crimes against you. And I pray that these students would dare not respond to their sin by just neglect, ignoring it, closing a blind eye, turning away, imagining that they can just hang on to their sin for a few more months and then give it up uh, further down the road, be that next October or when they turn 60. That's a lie. It's a flattering lie. Transgression will deceive them every time. And so I just pray, Lord, that by your word, you would give um, these students the grace of responding to their sin rightly with Godward sorrow. Lord, we, this is not something for teenagers. This is something for Christians. Lord, for all of us, every leader, every parent, every small group leader, every pastor, every discussion leader, every student, every student in here who's going off to college this year, every student who just started um, in the youth ministry, and everyone in between. I pray that we would be gripped with grief, with sorrow over how we've treated you, over the fact that you should not have to endure sins against your name by your own creation. I pray that we would hate, most of all, not the consequence we incur or not how complicated sin makes our lives. I pray that we would hope, hate most of all the fact that we've sinned against you. Make that our heartbeat this weekend. In your name we pray. Amen.